conflicts have been a leading cause of claims against lawyers for decades, yet lawyers often fail to spot conflicts before they cause a problem. In this episode, Ron Reinhardt, Senior Loss Prevention Counsel at Alas, will provide some practical tips for spotting common conflicts of interest. Ron, welcome. Well, thanks, Terry. Ron, each state has rules of professional conduct that address conflicts, but you have a simpler, practical approach to help lawyers spot them, right? That's right. We're not talking about actually analyzing and confirming a conflict of interest concern. That would require pulling out the actual rules and often getting some expertise from your firm's general counsel or loss prevention partner. What we're going to talk about instead are some basic situations that should trigger your spidey senses, that there may be danger lurking. Sounds promising. Tell us more about these situations. There are five concerns to keep in mind. Direct adversity, imputation, punch pulling, confidential information, and zero-sum gain. Let's begin with the direct adversity concern. At its most basic, this is the idea that you shouldn't be representing one client against another client. Absent consent, ethics rules view this as disloyalty and therefore a breach of a lawyer's fiduciary duties. Litigators get this one. They know that the same lawyer can't be on both sides of a lawsuit. But transactional lawyers may not see a conflict because they believe that everyone is aligned in wanting the deal to happen. Yeah, we do hear about that. The problem seems to be that lawyers sometimes equate adversity with enmity or hostility. But that's not what adversity means. Adversity is fundamentally just about the position of the parties vis-a-vis one another. So it's positional, not emotional. If the clients are across the table from each other, so to speak, then they're adverse. So the example I like to use is when you sit down to play chess with your best friend. You're buddies, right? There's no hostility there. You're even having maybe a good time, but you're still adversaries in the game. Likewise, when one firm client is buying from or selling to or doing a deal with another firm client, there's typically going to be direct adversity, and it doesn't matter that the clients tell you it's a friendly transaction. And let me add one other complication. I've been talking as if we're dealing with a two-sided situation, but transactions and litigation can often involve more than two parties. So really, there's a possibility of direct adversity, not just when a firm client is on the opposite side of the table, but whenever another firm client is involved and isn't completely aligned with you and your client on your side of the table. Ron, I noticed you mentioned one firm client being adverse to another firm client. As you know, the conflicts rules speak to the duties of lawyers, not firms. So this must be where your next concept comes in. Absolutely. And this is an opportune time to talk about the second concept, which is imputation. Under our ethics rules, if a lawyer has a conflict, that conflict is generally imputed to all other lawyers in the same firm. So in the example I just used where client A is selling something to client B, you can't avoid the conflict by having different lawyers in the same firm represent the two clients, not even if the lawyers are screened and in different locations. As many of your listeners know, there are some exceptions to imputation, but when you're just trying to spot conflicts, focusing on those exceptions, and there aren't many, is really getting ahead of yourself. Again, we're not talking here about the work needed to analyze whether a conflict actually exists, 
We're just talking about spotting situations that could need that analysis. And for that purpose, you should just assume imputation applies and that you can't distance yourself from a problem just because it's more to do with another lawyer at the firm. Good idea. What's next? Three more concepts. The next one is what Rule 1.7 calls material limitation. That's not a really friendly label, but it requires you to consider this question. Might you or somebody else at your firm have some interest that could lessen or change how you advocate for the client. At alas, we often analogize this to the idea of a boxer who, instead of going all out against his opponent, ends up pulling his punches for some reason. So we often call this the punch-pulling concern. All right. Uh, Would you give us an example? Sure. Here's a common situation. Let's assume you're negotiating something for company A. Company B is on the other side, and you know that Company B is one of your firm's biggest clients. Now, you've done things right. Another firm is representing Company B in your transaction, and you've gotten a waiver from both clients. But you've now gotten an outrageous demand from Company B's counsel, and you've just written a really strong accusatory response, and all of a sudden it occurs to you. Maybe I should tone down that letter a bit. After all, I don't want to offend Company B. It might pull business from the firm. You just hit a material limitation conflict. You're thinking about tempering your advocacy on behalf of Company A because of your close connection and loyalty to Company B. Time to call your general counsel to figure out what you should do. This is an important but tricky concept. It's worth some elaboration here. Tell us some more about situations that could lead to punch pulling. The rules are pretty open-ended, so you really need to think through what kind of accusations a disappointed client might be able to make down the road. We've already mentioned how concerns for another client's interests can be a material limitation conflict. Concerns for the firm's own interests can also be a problem. Take, for example, a situation where a lawyer realizes that the firm might have made a mistake in representing the client. In that situation, the lawyer might start to factor in the firm's own interests in avoiding consequences instead of just focusing on what could be best for the client. And lawyers also can have personal interests that lead to accusations of punch pulling. Lawyers having ownership interests in their clients is one common example But Rule 1.8 lists a bunch of additional situations that could fall within this category and might get overlooked if they weren't specifically iterated. That's helpful. What are the last two concepts on your list? The last two concepts are confidential information and something we call zero-sum game. You always have to be watching out for the possibility that the firm might have an opponent's confidential information. Most of the time, this involves a former client who is now on the other side of a dispute. The former client claims that the firm has confidential information as a result of that former representation. Take an example. The firm previously represented client A in a private placement of stock, including the preparation of a private offering memorandum. Client A is now in bankruptcy and the firm wants to represent client B as a creditor. The matters don't initially seem to be very related, 
entirely different practice areas. But client A might claim that its financial situation is very much at issue in both matters and that the firm was given extensive access to this kind of information in connection with its work on the private placement. The big problem here is that lawyers often don't really look into what was involved and learned in that form of representation. They tend to downplay the relevance of the prior representation, but the involved client often has a much different view. And it's not always just about former representations. The firm might have information as the result of discovery or due diligence in other matters. Lateral hiring can also raise the conflict. Take a recent California case, for example. A lawyer was working as the CEO for Company A. Nothing to do with legal advice, just business. But, of course, he learned an awful lot about Company A's operations. He then left the company and joined a law firm. The law firm, in turn, brought some cases against Company A. Even though the former CEO's knowledge wasn't from a lawyer-client relationship, the court found that there was a confidential information conflict. The point is that however a firm or a firm lawyer comes to have confidential information, it can create a conflict situation that merits attention. That takes us to the last concept on your list. The last situation that you've got to be really alert for is zero-sum game. I purposely left this one for last because I know some of your listeners may not be familiar with this situation. Depending on the circumstances, zero-sum game might be classified as direct adversity or punch bowling, but we think it's easier just to see it as a distinct concern. In essence, a zero-sum game conflict exists whenever a firm is helping two or more of the firm's clients to compete either for a limited benefit or a limited asset. Say, for example, the FCC is auctioning off a single radio license for the Chicago listening area. Two clients separately approach the firm to ask for help putting together their bids. That's likely a zero-sum game conflict. Because if the firm helps client A win, it will also have arguably helped client B lose. The same goes for a situation in which the parties are battling for priority from a pool of assets that's insufficient to satisfy all claims. When the firm helps client A get a big share, it may also be diminishing the share available to client B. That can be a conflict. Why is this one so tricky? Because an ordinary conflict check may not catch it. Partner one submits a new matter to represent company A on that radio bid. From that partner's perspective, there's really no opponent other than the FCC. In fact, the partner may have no idea who the other bidders are, so couldn't list them even if the partner wanted to. Partner two might do the exact same thing for her representation of company B. In fact, though, the two clients are in direct competition with each other. How do you avoid this kind of conflict? Well, when opening matters, be sure to accurately describe the subject of the representation. This will give the conflicts team and and the firm's other lawyers a better opportunity to catch any issue involving competing clients. Bankruptcy and intellectual property lawyers especially should watch out for this situation. But even with everyone alert at intake, this kind of situation might slip by. Same for the confidential information situation. 
you need to be on the lookout for all these five issues throughout every representation. Conflicts can come up at any time, and in fact, your spotting skills may be most needed for the issues that arise after intake. So that's it. Five things to watch for instead of a series of rules with subparts. Absolutely. We think that if you keep in mind direct adversity, imputation, punch pulling, confidential information, and zero-sum game, you should be able to spot 95% of all conflicts of interest. That's because these concepts underlie almost all of the specific conflict rules. Anything else? Yeah, a few additional thoughts. When you're watching for these five concerns, you need to be sure that you're not looking at things through rose-colored glasses. It's natural to be optimistic, especially when you're thinking about new business. But conflict spotting is much more reliable if it adopts a pessimistic view of what could happen going forward. And in a related vein, you need to make sure that you have accurate, complete information. As the saying goes, garbage in, garbage out. Sensitivity to these concerns may be for naught if you've misspelled a party's name and therefore don't realize another client is implicated. Same thing about not providing accurate information concerning affiliated entities and involved third parties. These days, misconflicts of interest often involve players that the lawyer forgot to mention during the new business intake process or afterwards. Finally, whenever you're in doubt, err on the side of raising the issues. For associates, that may mean talking with the partner on the matter. For partners, you should clear any conflict issue that you spot or that somebody brings to your attention with your firm's general counsel or loss prevention partner. After all, they likely have much more expertise about the actual rules and any options for how the conflict might get resolved. Great. Thanks, Ron, for explaining this handy conceptual approach to spotting conflicts. I'm sure you have even more tips about conflicts. We'll have to get you back in here again for another episode to discuss them. It would be a pleasure. Until next time, I'm Terry Garland, and this is the Portable Ethics Lawyer. This podcast is provided for educational purposes to assist lawyers in avoiding ethics violations, malpractice suits, other professional liability claims, and management liability claims. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. The recommendations contained in this podcast are not necessarily appropriate for every lawyer or law firm. In determining the best course of action, lawyers should consider the applicable legal authorities and all relevant facts and circumstances. Copyright 2022 by Attorneys Liability Assurance Society. All rights reserved.